Good morning, everybody. If you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verse 31 through 34, I'd like to continue what I hope has been a, an encouraging study for you, what I hope has been all the things we've prayed for, uh, that we hear better and love better and see Jesus more clearly and hear him more clearly. I pray that that is taking place in all of our lives and all of our hearts. I'd like to read Luke 4, verse 31 to 44. As we begin to, to move from what we talked about last week, where, where Jesus became, his credentials became to be known as he stood up and, and read from Isaiah, and he said, it turned a comma into a period and said, today the scripture's been fulfilled as he revealed himself. And, and as we read about how he was rejected, but yet he was clear, he came for a mission to release people in captivity and in bondage. And, and now we, we pick up with like a day in the life of Jesus. <laughs> kind of, I don't know what your days have been like, but uh, here's one of his, um, or a couple of his. And so uh, let's learn from what, what Jesus' ministry looked like. Verse 31 of Luke 4, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in this synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 38, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had uh, any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And, and demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. When it was day, departed, went to a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now up to this point in Luke's gospel, the emphasis has been upon the person of Christ, on his credentials as Messiah, Son of God, and Savior. But starting here in verse 31, we see much of Jesus' power and authority on display. It really sets the tone of his ministry as to being the one who has authority over demons, disease, religious leaders, spiritual and physical realms over everyone and everything. And the main point of this passage, I believe, and I kind of want to get it out there right off the bat, the main point is in Jesus, the authority of God is compassionately applied to us. Let me say it again. In Jesus, the authority of God's is compassionately applied to us. 
Let's unpack that a little bit. Because the text gives us four things that not only demonstrated the basis for his ministry, but there are four things the demonic realm feared. We see this pop up first and foremost, verse 31, is his preaching. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Capernaum, it's on the northwest shore of Galilee, was a large enough city that, according to Matthew 8, it had a Roman centurion and an attachment of soldiers and a royal official. Rome didn't let out people unless it was a pretty prominent city. Um, I didn't really realize how big the Sea of Galilee is. It's actually like 13 miles by 8. I kind of always included like a little pond in my mind, a little, little baby, but it's not. It's, a, it's big, and it had a good fishing industry. And so Capernaum was a pretty big place, maybe 1,000 people. 1500 something like that compared to nazareth anything was big right um and as we read about this we read that jesus rebukes the city later we'd read that in the gospels he rebukes capernaum later for their exalted view of their of their importance as a city in addition several disciples were associated with capernaum notably peter and, and andrew were from there but jesus comes preaching Now in verse 43 later, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. He wasn't sent for the marvels. He was sent for the message. That's what is supposed to capture. That is what will really capture the critic, is the message of Jesus Christ. And he was a preacher was foremost what he did. It was his main ministry focus. And the interesting thing is I think about Jesus' message and and, and his ministry of preaching, it was consistent. I mean, he didn't come into towns and cities to be the greatest showman on earth. He came to preach a message, the gospel, for that is the purpose he came. He was clear. I mean, when God's message His word is preached clearly. It speaks directly to us. Even those who uh, were put off by this message, even those who got angry with it, for the most part, they understood it. That's why they got angry. He was clear. He's a perfect, by the way, perfect example for every preacher. And what amazed the listeners of Jesus was the grand truths that came from heaven that seemed to fit in the everyday fabric of their lives. Jesus preaching astonished people because it was clear. It brought conviction that was clear, but it brought hope that was also clear. And his message was consistent because that's what he did. He preached the message wherever he went. His message was clear. His preaching was clear. And clearly, we see it here, his preaching was authoritative. His word, we're told, possessed authority. Verse 32. His word possessed authority. Absolute authority that came with the consistent and clear preaching. Now we can often quote others who are more learned and and maybe more specialists in the area, especially in theology. And There's nothing wrong with that because we want to learn, but Jesus quoted nobody. Uh, He didn't need to. And he was so different in that way because when he spoke, he spoke with utter independence. He cited no authorities. He quoted no experts. He spoke with the finality of the voice of God. And to the people who heard it, 
there was a sense of a wind from heaven. His words carried authority. And although we're not Jesus, clearly, we can teach authoritatively because we have God's revelation. And the degree to which we honor and stay true to the text is the degree to which we can preach with authority and confidence. But make no mistake, his preaching was authoritative. Again, even those who uh, were antagonistic and enemies, really, of what he said, knew he was preaching and he was claiming authority. So his preaching came. It was consistent, it was clear, and it was authoritative. But then we read verse 32 and 34, his purpose. A little bit more about his purpose. We're told they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In a synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out in a loud voice. We're going to break that down, exactly this interaction. But I kind of want to let you in on a big part of my prayer this week. My prayer is that there be something that would grab you. Something of Jesus that would wow you in this text. Not just get your attention, but, but would cause your spirit to rise up and say, whoa, <laughs> whoa. And, and, and maybe you would sing, I, Chris Tomlin's song came into my head all week, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is healer. And, and, and something would rise up within you that would proclaim those truths and it would grab you. And this encounter is amazing because if you look at it, they're in a synagogue, having church. There's a man in the synagogue. It was the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out in a loud voice. I guarantee nobody came home to lunch and said, what a boring service. They're like, hello, that'll grab your attention. And because and, you can picture, right? Somebody came in the midst, stood up, crying out, an unclean demon. And, and all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, what was, what's going on here? And you'd come home and you'd talk about it. I said, what was going What was that all about? So you knew people were paying attention to this, this encounter. And so try to picture synagogue, everyone watching this encounter. And I pray you would watch it and really see what's going on. Now, a few things that we need to understand. Jesus' encounters with the forces of darkness illustrate several truths about demons. I'm not going to go into too much depth. As I said a couple weeks ago, there's a series uh, on our website on spiritual warfare, and uh, it's a whole series. You can go through it there. But there are some things that need to be said. First of all, when it comes to demons, they are real. They're spiritual world creatures, and they've turned to the service of pure evil. Now, some people are into horror movies, and they get these horror movies on, and and they're scared. Oh, oh, oh. And some people approach demons like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know. Maybe they'll spook me every now and then. Okay? You don't get it. <laughs> You're not getting the demonic realm. They're able to possess people. They're able to possess people. Now, in the New Testament, there's four New Testament phrases that describe demon possession. First one is it's this phrase is used 16 times, and people are said to have a demon or have an evil spirit. That's, that's what's used here. Secondly, 13 times a phrase is used that's translated demon-possessed or a demoniac, demoniac. Third, the Bible speaks of those with an unclean spirit. And fourth, which is not often, but it speaks of those afflicted 
with unclean spirits. But here we have someone who's possessed, who has an unclean spirit. So they're able to possess people. He had a, had a spirit that literally indwelt him. They represent demons, that which is unclean, sinful, evil. Their delight is to pollute and destroy people with all filthiness. Look at our culture. Look what's out there. I mean, there's some stuff that's absolutely vulgar and filthy. We don't have to guess what's behind that. Demons use human bodies to carry out their wicked schemes. That's why Paul warns, don't give the devil a foothold. You give him a foot, he'll take a mile. They're able to use demons, human bodies. Jesus in other places calls it and equates the human body with a house. Other passages, we'll run into this Luke later. Demons know who Jesus is. I'm pretty clear. They respond to the authority of Christ. It's in his name, his authority, and his power they pull up short. And so if you're going around in your life and you're like, oh, I'm attacked by a demon, demons don't, they're not intimidated by your name, trust me. But when you bring the name of Jesus into it, it's a different discussion. It's not that we throw it around like a, a magician, but, but you come and say, Jesus, who, who Christ is in me, the hope of my glory, it's in his name that I stand. It's the name of Jesus we defend ourselves with because the demonic realm responds to the authority of Christ. The demons depart when they're told to do so. But often, there's a struggle. And that should drive you and I to persistent prayer. Some people call that warfare prayer. I'm not sure all that they mean. All I know is we need to be persistently in prayer for deliverance and that God's Spirit would work. Now Luke makes clear from the outset that all three terms, spirit, unclean, and demon, refer to the evil phenomena that attempt to corrupt God's purposes. You and I are powerless against them. We are powerless against the demonic realm. You need to understand that. You need to come to grips with it. You and I and ourself cannot roll up our sleeves and hope to defeat the demonic realm. Only Christ can. And Christ can. Make no mistake. This text is going to be very clear on this. His purpose. And here's verse 34. Notice the words from the demon. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Notice the word destroy. It's an important word. I think the demonic realm knew something. Because 1 John 3.8, if you cross that word with 1 John 3.8, we find the same word, but in a whole different context. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy it. What's the demon's question? Have you come to destroy us? Actually, yeah. <laughs> Jesus had. Uh, he came to destroy the works of the devil. As John says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Crucial word. The word destroy means to ruin. Bring to nothing. Abolish. Or bring to end. 
And you'll see this happens in Revelation 20. So if you're freaked out by the whole idea of demons attacking you and, and that they're powerful, if you're all freaked out, I, I would encourage you to believe the whole story. Because the whole story is the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil and ultimately, for all of eternity, they'll be destroyed. Now there's something else the demon says which grabs my attention. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't that interesting? A demon would proclaim, I know who you are, you're the Holy One of God. Do you notice the indictment the demon's making? You're the Holy One of God. He testifies to Jesus' purity. You're holy. He recognizes that. And they could not hold their terror in the face of the Holy Son of God. What business do you have with us? That's kind of what he's asking. And now, who's the us? Some questions have said, is the us uh, uh, the whole demonic realm? Or is the us just the demon and the man? And I would put forth it's the demon and the man because the demons possess the man and he's right there. So what do you have to do with us? That's at least the way I interpret it. And what business do you got dealing with us? That type of thing. And that's their question. But they recognize the purity, and due to their evil, they shrink back. Couldn't be more opposite ends of the spectrum. They're trying to convey they know who Jesus They're trying to convey, hey, we know what you're up to, and so kind of leave us alone, and, uh, and you kind of go do what you're going to do, and, but then they begin to panic, and the questions confirm Jesus' preeminence. Now we see his authority over the demonic realm, verse 35. But Jesus rebuked them, saying, be silent, come out of him. Now, be silent seems to us, just the way we use it, kind of soft. It's not the Greek word. Let me give you maybe a little bit the way we do it. Shut up. That's, that's what he's saying. Be quiet. Done. There's no wrestling match. It's shut up, be quiet, end of discussion. It's not a suggestion. You ever say it to your kids sometimes? Go do that. This, I'm not suggesting that. I'm telling you, go do it. There's authority behind that. And there's ultimate authority behind this to this demon and to all the demonic realm, shut up. I have authority over you. And so as we look at this, we can't miss the fact that Jesus has ultimate authority here. As a matter of fact, you see the word rebuke, verse 35, verse 39, and verse 41. The text doesn't want us to make any mistake of who's in control here. Jesus. The demon throws the man down in one final act of defiance. As I read the text, it almost seems like he's having a um, kind of sometimes what the kids have, you know, uh, a, a fit. <laughs> um, one last act of defiance. As Jesus, after Jesus rebukes him, the demon had thrown him down in the midst. He came out of him, having done him no harm. Jesus won't let that happen. Now, in another case of the Gospels, the crowd said, Nothing like this has ever been done in Israel. And what we read here is after that's done, verse 36, they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? I, I mean, I, what they're basically saying, how, how, does it, how can he do this? How can he speak to this demon and this demon just boogies? 
What's, what's with this word? And all of Israel was amazed. Think about it for a second. Wouldn't you be? Now, some don't believe in a demonic realm, and so they're looking at this text thinking, good story. If you believe in the demonic realm, and you do believe in the evil, the pure evil, and the power of the demonic realm, you're looking at this going, whoa, <laughs> this Jesus is something. This Jesus, he's got authority. And the crowd, they're all amazed. What's this word? Because with, notice so here it is, with authority and power. He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out, i.e., they listen to him. And this is not a one-time fluke, by the way, because Luke uses the present tense. He commands unclean spirits, and they come out. This was, this was a characteristic of his ministry. This isn't just, hey, remember a couple years ago Jesus did this, and, you know, and this happened? That was cool. No, it was a characteristic of his ministry, this authority, and this power. And again, the text's emphasis on Jesus' word makes it clear that he's not simply an exorcist, but one who overthrows the power of demons as part of the proclamation of God's reign. The good news is he hasn't changed. You can be delivered. You can be redeemed from the curse of sin because of the authority and power of Jesus Christ. The astonishing power over demons and We've heard verse 37 and 44, over sickness. Follow along. Reports about him were going to every place in the surrounding region, uh, which I would get because, because they were here, they saw it, and guess what? They were wowed. Like, whoa. And many even unbelievers in this case who, who didn't believe in him, maybe even ticked at him, it's spreading, this word. And then verse 37, or verse 38, here's what we get. And he arose left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Luke doesn't introduce Simon. His hearers knew who Peter was. Just, hey, Simon's house. Oh, yeah, I know Peter. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. God, that verse is loaded. Simon's mother-in-law was ill. Maybe you're like, you know, I was raised in a certain mainline denomination. I, I didn't know Peter was married. In fact, you might have been told, you know, Peter sainthood and you know and so he wasn't married and he was set apart and and uh, but peter was married he had a wife because he had a mother-in-law <laughs> and his mother-in-law is ill and luke again assumes everyone knows who peter is and and in luke being a doctor notice what he does she didn't have a fever she had a high fever it wasn't just a high fever this high fever held her it, it, it restricted her. It probably was life-threatening in that case. And this fever held her fast, and she needed to be released from the effect it was having on her. Such is the language you, Jesus, or the, such is the language used. Jesus demonstrates his power over the forces that debilitate the natural body, because he rebukes the fever. He has authority over this sickness. And at Christ's word, the fever left her. Suddenly, all symptoms were gone. And the text wants us to know that because she got up and served. Probably served out of gratefulness. Probably served because she felt really good. So I got no fever. 
So what would you do if you didn't have a fever near well? The servant's heart, Peter's mother-in-law, and so she served. I, I remember a couple situations in my life of, of healing. And um, one is, I had taken a, a large youth group. We were on our way down to Atlanta for a conference. We stopped at, I think it was St. Louis. And uh, as I was driving through the day, I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And I was kind of the guy in charge, so I can't afford to get sick. You know, uh, all these 40, 50, whatever teenagers we had. And, uh, and, and I felt absolutely horrible. And uh, we got to our motel, it's it like probably seven, and I just, I'm going to bed. The problem is I'm sharing a motel room with three teenage boys. So you can see how this idea of sleep, that'd be a miracle just to get the sleep, right? But these boys, you know what they did? They prayed for me. And you know what happened? I got healed. I mean, I felt so good, it was unbelievable. I mean, not only did I not, it's not like I got a little better. I felt amazing. Those three teenage boys, we kind of write off our teenagers. Teenagers, don't, don't let people do that. These are three teenage guys. All they knew was that Jesus could heal, and they asked him, and he did. That's pretty cool to me. I've also had adults pray and seen God heal. And so teenagers, adults, it wasn't the, the people so much as it was God's power and authority. And that's the whole point of the text. God's power and authority is on display. Now notice what else happens. This is amazing. So she's healed completely. Verse 40, now when the sun is setting, all those who had, uh, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many. Not, not all, okay, not all, but, but many. And these demons are crying, what the other one, well, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them. Well, we can only guess based on what we just read, what he said, shut up, <laughs> be quiet. And he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was a Christ. Now, here is an interesting thing to me. Why? Why would he tell them to be silent? Think what the demons are saying. What they're saying is true, right? He's the holy son of God. Correct? He is. We know that you're the Christ. Indeed, he is. They're better evangelists than, than some people, unfortunately. But he tells them to be quiet. He would not allow them to testify because he doesn't need demonic testimony. That's the point. There's an insightful quote from Thomas Gundry's A Harmony of the Gospels, and they write something really, I think, is insightful. It was altogether inappropriate that Jesus' messiahship should be proclaimed by representatives of the evil one. Had he allowed this by not silencing the demons, he would have given grounds for a charge to be brought against him later by the Pharisees, that of being Satan's ally. That was interesting, very insightful. And so he silences the testimony of the demons. Amazing. And then we read the healing of townspeople. Sun setting suggests townspeople are impatient to get the sick to Jesus. Put yourself in the text. You're from a surrounding area. You have a sick child, sick spouse, sick relative. You hear there's this Jesus over next door, down the road, and he is healing people. And some of them are coming back telling you, I was healed. 
and you might know Bob and Jane who came back and said I was healed, and you're like, you would do, right? You would do what I would do. I'm getting that child. I'm getting, their, I'm getting them to Jesus. I don't care how I look. This is my son. This is my daughter. i got to get them to Jesus. Even if there's no belief, there's a flicker of hope that just maybe, maybe they can be healed. You could put yourself in the text. You, you would be doing it, wouldn't you? You'd be getting your loved ones to Jesus as quick as you could. And so you're not alone because that's what's going on. The demonstration of Jesus' power over Satan and the demons and sickness showed his ability to deliver sinners from their grasp. But notice verse 44. We can't skip it or overlook it. Now, don't worry, I know I'm jumping ahead. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Remember, that's his primary ministry focus. Preaching, and he just doesn't stop doing that. He continues to preach the gospel. He preached a message. Was not a, he, he didn't come to be a performer of marvels and miracles. He came to preach a message. The miracles pointed to the authority and power he had to preach that message. Hearers heard the message, and if they were saying, man, is this, is this communicator authentic? Is he viable? They saw the miracles. They saw the authority. They thought of power, and they said, we better listen to what he's saying, because nobody can do this. That's kind of how they work together. And the apostles, we, we look at their life, and we can see the same thing. They authenticated the messenger in that sense. Jesus, by the way, is very willing to use his authority and power in compassionate care for his people. Jesus is very willing to use his power and authority and compassionate care for people. There's hope. There's hope for the addict. There's hope for the afflicted, for the sick, for the possessed. There's hope. Which kind of brings me to some observations I kind of like to close with. One is Jesus had a clear emphasis on solid Biblical teaching. It's the gospel. It's what he preached. He quoted scripture. He preached the gospel. It was primary first in his ministry focus. And it would stand to reason that if we were to follow Jesus' example, what should be first and foremost in our minds and in our words is the gospel. That's what we've been called to do. To go preach the gospel. That should be your emphasis when you go to work. Should be emphasis in your home. Should be emphasis in where you uh, recreate and where you go on vacation. All of that should be preeminent in our mind. Why am I here? To preach the gospel. That's what you're supposed to do. It's what I'm supposed to do. And so I see an emphasis on preaching the gospel. I also see a dependence on the power of God. Jesus possesses astonishing power and authority it's astonishing what he did read the text it's what really happened luke a historian a doctor of all people luke would point it out if it wasn't real healing right he would say well it's just i gave him a little medicine he's but luke was astounded luke was astonished by jesus power and authority i hope you are well you as well and i hope that you're depending on the power of god in your life Seek Him. Ask Him. 
He wants to compassionately care for you because He possesses all authority and power. He's able to care for us like none other. And I get this at the end, and I don't say I save this for the end because I think it's key to us preaching the gospel, hearing from God, and depending on the power of God. We find this in verse 40. I'm sorry, verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. He got away from everybody, all the activity. He got away. And quietness is going to be essential to you and I if we're going to hear from God and if we're going to lay at his feet all the other crutches and depend upon him it's essential you and I have time in our life a rhythm in our life of being quiet to order to have ears to hear we need to be quiet as Al led us in prayer he modeled well what Jesus encourages us to do he opened his life and the rhythm of his days to solitude. His, his and our prayer deepens. Our persistence is birthed in quietness. That's why the scriptures say, in quietness there's refreshment. And because I, I, I have a phrase I've used that discovered somewhere along the line, it really seems to be true in my life. If my activity is to bear fruit, it must be preceded by intimacy. No intimacy, my activity is going to be fruitless. Time with God where we depend and, and utter and give voice to our dependence on Him, and when we have ears to hear what He's saying to Him, to us, that bears fruit and it allows us to depend on Him in a day-to-day and -day a regular way. Jesus had a priority on quietness before God, might you and I, do that as well. I said at the beginning, my prayer was that you and I would be wowed by the power and the authority of Christ. It's still my prayer. For if we can be wowed by what we see and astonished by His power and authority, we'll love Him better. We'll hear Him more clearly. We'll see Him more clearly. Isn't that been our prayer all along? Be astonished. Be in awe as you look at Jesus, our Savior, our King. Let's pray. Dear God, i got to confess in my life it's pretty easy to go through the day and being a Christian for a few years, maybe read accounts and say, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. God, forgive me. Forgive us for approaching passages like this academically. For sitting back with crossed arms and faces that reflect knowledge but no transformation. Might our hearts be open? That is truly our prayer. But God, this morning, I, I really pray our minds would be open, that we would be blown away by you who transcend every thought we could even have, every obstacle we could put before you. 
Might it cause us, God, to bring those in our realm of influence, the addicts, the possessed, those who've been sick and those who are afflicted, God, before you knowing that your power and your authority are more than able to heal and deliver. God, might what we see in this text, what we, what we believe, cause us, God, to a greater dependence upon you and a greater worship of you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.